All right. Welcome back to House Wine. Uh, this is a show, a podcast for anyone who would like to know about wine, uh, to learn about wine, to drink good wine. And I'm Rachel. I'm the host. I write. I produce the show. I am a certified uh, sommelier from Toronto. And I have the pillow fort all set up uh, so that we can talk about some wine tonight. Not just any wine, the wines of British Columbia. Uh, so I know that this is an episode that has been hotly requested. Uh, there's been a few people who've reached out actually and asked me to do this episode, spanning going a little while back now. And I, it's been something that has sort of been in the back of my mind for a while. But to tell you the complete and honest truth, um, because what else is having a wine podcast for? I've been kind of avoiding it. Uh, it has been a little bit of a dark spot in my wine knowledge uh, for a while because I grew up in Vancouver and I know BC itself quite well. Um, but when I left, I was quite young. Uh, basically, the minute I turned 18, because I was very angsty and I wanted to live in Montreal and hang out with bands and do like French things, uh, I left very young, and so I never really got into wine culture there. Um, and I've always kind of associated BC with like rain and grayness and all of the angsty feelings I had as a 16-year-old teenager on the West Coast, you know, listening to Elliot Smith and Cedar Kinney in my room because no one understood me, uh, all that kind of stuff. So for some reason, I just kind of lumped wine in with that, and I never really went back and, you know, I've had these wines, I've drank these wines, but I never really went back and studied these wines and got into the grit of what all of these wines are about, because I don't have the best associated memories uh, with BC or with Vancouver. But I will say this about uh, about BC, is that it is crazy beautiful and it looks stunning and it really is like no other place on earth and outside of the wines uh those may be the most flattering things you'll ever hear me say about british columbia so welcome to our first episode on canada i am uh, not going to cover the wine laws of canada today uh, because there are no federally mandated wine laws in canada it really goes province to province. And even though uh, they are regulated provincially, they are still pretty similar across the board, but with minor differences. So some of the things may as well be federally mandated, like ice wine, uh, because it's the same everywhere, even though it's technically regulated by the province in which it's made. Uh, but that is all to say that we are going to cover a lot of ground and that this episode is pretty close to home, not just because it is the first time that we've talked about a Canadian wine region, but also because it's where I spent some of my formative years, even though I was obviously uh, underage, like I said, and can pretty definitively tell you that I was not drinking uh, fine wine at the time. So uh, let's start where we usually like to start, and that is with the history. Not my own personal history, but the history of the wine regions of British Columbia, the actual histories of the region. The wines of British Columbia are very much linked to and quite similar to the wines of Washington State. Uh, and this is like, you can think of this as like pioneer country. This is 
where there is kind of this still like very open, very rugged country that's quite sparsely populated. And so like Washington, this was one of the last wine regions in the world to be populated with Vitis vinifera because it was one of the last regions in the world to be populated with Europeans. And that is obviously colonization, but Vitis vinifera is something they brought with them and it's a very European and Eurocentric thing. So when the Europeans came, they brought the wine and the West is really one of the last places they ever went. So the first vines were actually planted by a French priest named Charles Pendosi in 1859. After several attempts at vinifera, however, it was thought that perhaps the climate was just not suited to be making wines from European varieties. So luckily, at the time, there was a lot of experimentation going on with things in places that were not thought to be grown before. And this was, of course, due to phloxera, which we very recently talked about. So very quickly, the most planted grapes in British Columbia became hybrids because they were able to withstand the cold weather and hot temperatures in the summer, whereas the vinifera grapes were not. Also, phylloxera. Though there is very little phylloxera in British Columbia because it's so mountainous that it just like hasn't really been able to get there. Not entirely without, I don't think, but not a ton. So it wasn't until almost a uh, hundred years later that Incamip sellers started re-experimenting with the vinifera vine. This was close to 1975, but even then that would not be the catalyst for what sent BC into the quality wine movement. Because, and we talked about this just recently, even hybrids don't make the best still dry wines. They can be used for a lot of other things and they make good ice wine, they make good distillate, but they're just not great for high quality red and white still wines. The thing that really broke open the BC wine market was the end of a free trade agreement that Canada had with the US in 1988. This made it easier to buy baby vines from nurseries in the U.S., so there was greater access to high-quality vinifera vines coming from California and the Pacific Northwest. However, the end of this treaty was a double-edged sword. There was also no longer protections that wines that were already being made had against competition presented by the U.S. wine market. As a result, just before we enter the 1990s, two-thirds of all vineyards were uprooted but many of these vineyards were hybrids and they were Concord grapes. So it actually did give way for growing more wine-centric, more quality grapes that fast forward to today have really put British Columbia on the map as an emerging wine region. Move along to the 1990s and they're all focused on the industry recovery. And this is when we see the creation of the BC Wine Institute to be a regulating body and help delimit geographical indications and put the focus back on quality in the BC wine industry. Now, the British Columbia wine industry morphed into the BC VQA. And we also have a VQA in Ontario, and it stands for Vintners Quality Alliance. However, this is confusing. They are not the same. They're not affiliated, nor do they have the same rules provincially for their wines, which is kind of annoying, but here we are. The one thing that they do share the rules on, though, is ice wine. But before we get into that, the rules for wines that are made in BC are the following. 
And we're talking about the modern wines here, the wines that are Vitis vinifera, these sort of European-style wines. So these wines have to be subject to a tasting panel, but the BC Wine Authority says that these wines have to have a BC typical character to pass, which basically just means that it has to be a kind of wine and not a hybrid wine. 100% of all the grapes have to be from British Columbia, 95% of all the grapes have to be from a specified region, and there are subregions here too, so we can get quite specific and quite small, and then 85% of the vintage and stated variety have to be the same for them to appear on the label on the bottle, which I think we all know by now because I say it, I think, every episode is pretty standard across the board in terms of how wine is exported globally because you have to be a minimum of 85 to enter the EU. So it's no surprise that again, we see this number pop up even in British Columbia. Now, before we start talking about the regions and the places, and then we finish up with some producers, I think we need to talk about ice wine. Ice wine is big business here in Canada. And a lot of the ice wine that we make, we never see domestically. The number one market for ice wine in the world is Asian countries, but more specifically, it's China. And in China, they actually make quite a bit of their own ice wine. But I think that it's worth noting that there are wineries in both BC and Ontario that only sell wine to China. They're like these offshore Chinese ice wine factories And we never see or try these wines. That's how huge the demand is for ice wine in China. And that's all a buildup for me to say ice wine is huge. And even though in Canada we make both BC and Ontarian ice wine, there's really some great world-class ice wine here. And even though we make great still wines, our industry feels like it will always be overshadowed with this like titan that is ice wine. It's just like never going to go away. It's a huge thing. So you cannot talk about Canadian wine without talking about ice wine. So what is ice wine? How did we start making it? And how do you even get it? And what does ice wine mean? These are some of the rules and the rules are as follows. And these are the same rules for ice wine all over Canada, by the way. So they're not just applicable to Ontario. They're also applicable to BC and vice versa. There must be an ambient temperature of negative eight degrees at the time of harvest. And I'm not going to lie. Uh, usually it's colder because you have things like wind chill. And <laughs> there's a lot of people I know who've, you know, gotten on a bus at 1 a.m. to go to Niagara and pick ice wine in the middle of the night in the middle of December or January. Uh, I am not one of them because I don't want to do that. But a lot of people do. And it looks, um, hmm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It looks really miserable. Uh, But furthermore, the only grapes that are allowed to be used in ice wine are the vinifera grapes or Vidal. Vidal is a hybrid, but it's the one exception. You can, in both British Columbia and Ontario, use Vidal. The grapes must also be grown within a GI or a geographical indication. They must be pressed when they're still frozen, which means that you can't just leave them out in the winery to thaw. You have to get them there and press them quick while they're still frozen from natural freezing and not from having been put in a freezer. 
Of course, you could make ice wine this way, but it's not the correct way to make ice wine. It's like the cheating way to make ice wine. And of course, to make ice wine, there's no capitalization allowed, which means you cannot add extra sugar into the grape juice to make it ferment faster or longer. They are not allowed to cold stabilize, which just means that they basically chill down the wine while it's fermenting to have it ferment for longer. You're not allowed to do that. And some people also use this as a kind of um, filtration because when you cold stabilize things, particles sink to the bottom. But they don't do this in ice wine. So maybe because it's already cold once it started fermenting. I don't actually know the reason why they don't do it, but it's not allowed in Canadian ice wine. If you know the answer and would like to tell me, you'll have to wait till the end of the podcast to hear my contact details. Keep listening. (laughs) And here's the fun bit. Ice wine must be a minimum of 100 grams per liter of residual sugar. That is a very sweet wine. Ice wine is probably among some of the sweetest wines that are out there. And they are actually really, really delicious. A lot of people like to kind of poo-poo ice wine. I think a lot of Canadians also like to poo-poo ice wine uh, just because they're like, I don't know, maybe it's ubiquitous here and therefore people feel it's not good, but it it's so syrupy and delicious. I, I don't understand how people could not like it, but that's just me. So the place where they make all this wine in BC is mostly in the interior which now that I'm saying that makes me feel like that might be a little bit of a a BC colloquialism, but it refers to the mountainous part of BC rather than the coastal part of the province, which is of course where you will find major cities like Vancouver and Victoria. There are some wine regions on the coast, but really the bulk of the wines that are being made are further inland because we have what in BC? A rain shadow. It is very, very wet on the coast, and that is not an exaggeration. It rains all the time which is not great for growing wine. Like, not at all. Uh, We saw the same thing when we talked about the Puget Sound in Washington State, which is right south of Vancouver Island. And even though it's a very large Appalachian, they don't make very much wine there because it's so rainy and wet. And this is what we see happening in BC as well. However, that said, there are quite a few regions along the coast that have been delimited as GIs, and they are the Gulf Islands, which is a string of islands that sit in the Georgia Strait between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And this is where all the hippies live and all the nudist colonies are, but that's an aside. They also make wine there. And then there's the Vancouver Island GI. This is like a a thin strip along the eastern side of Vancouver Island, But they also have their own sub-GI there. It's the only sub-GI that is outside the Okanagan Valley, and that is the Cowichan Valley sub-GI that's part of the Vancouver Island GI. And then there is the Fraser Valley, and that's located in kind of the space around the city of Vancouver. Now, even though it's much more developed today than when I was growing up, once you kind of get out of Vancouver, there is a lot of space. There's like sprawling suburbs, but there's also a lot of rural land. And it makes sense that even though they're not making a ton of wine, this would have been delimited because it is essentially farmland. Now, all three of these GIs share very similar characteristics in that they are west of the Rocky Mountains, so they're subject to the same geographical features. The ocean plays a big factor here, namely the Georgia Strait and the Puget Sound. And the Fraser River and the Fraser Valley is impactful. But 
Mainly, it's the fact that they are on the quote-unquote wrong side of the rain shadow, which means that grapes grown in these GIs are subject to a lot of rain and less sunlight than grapes that are grown on the other side of the mountains, where there is so little rain that it's actually considered to be the only desert in Canada. So let's chat about those Appalachians over there on the other side of the mountains. There are a few in North BC, but they don't make too much wine either. The fact is, is that BC is one of the most northern growing regions in the world, even more north laterally than most of Germany. And without a desert and the hot conditions caused by the rain shadow in the Okanagan Valley, there wouldn't be much wine grown here at all. Even historically, they didn't start growing Vitis vinifera grapes because no one even really believed it could be done until they started experimenting with growing along these really moderating bodies of water. So there are the GIs of Lillouette, which has most notably been completely destroyed by forest fires. So of the limited wines that were being made there to begin with, we're really not going to be holding our breath for the 2020 and 21 vintages, unfortunately. Uh, then there is the Thompson Valley uh, and the Shoe Swap, just above the Okanagan Valley in the north. And then there's also the Kootenays, which is so far into the interior that it kind of passes the rain shadow. And even though it sits on the border with the U.S., it's just far enough in that sort of eastern part that instead of being warm, the mountainous nature of that sort of Appalachian makes it quite cold. But all to say they are making wines in these GIs, and they're their own delimited Appalachians. They have their own protected status and fall under the rules that are laid out by BC Wine Law and the VQA. But they aren't making tons of wine there. The place that we are undoubtedly making the most wine and that has the biggest name and the most reputable name outside of BC is the Okanagan Valley. And then also to some degree, the Similkameen Valley, which is just beside it to the west. And there are two things going on in the Okanagan Valley that make it a great place to make wine. And the first is the Sonoran Desert, which stretches all the way up along the west coast of the USA from Mexico and extends just a very little bit into BC, right at the base of the Okanagan Valley and Similkameen GIs. This is one of the warmest places in all of Canada. Also, there is the Okanagan Lake, which is a sort of very long, narrow lake that stretches the full length of the Okanagan Valley. And this is a glacial melt lake, so it has a huge cooling effect on the region. Even though it is hot, the lake keeps it cool enough for grapes to be grown there. And this is also a huge area for farming in general, especially fruit farming and orchard farming because of the hot, dry conditions. And right there at the southern tip of the Okanagan Lake is where you're going to find the bulk of the sub-GIs that exist in British Columbia. On the east side of the lake from north to south, you have the Naramata Bench, the Skaha Bench, the Okanagan Falls, and then on the lower west side of the lake, you have the Golden Miles Bench. And those are all sub-GIs. And to make it even more complicated, there are two unofficial sub-regions here, which I assume means that sometime in the next few years, they will indeed become fully recognized as legally recognized sub-zones. 
but you do hear them talked about quite a lot in relation to their importance as wine regions, and they are Black Sage, Kelowna, and I realized I said two, but I meant to say three, because there's also a Soyuz, which comes up probably as the most official of the quote-unquote unofficial regions. So that is the geography and the laws of BC, but what are they making there and what kinds of wines are they producing? Well, this happens pretty rarely in the world, but BC is the main market for their own wine. Most of the wines that are being made in BC stay in BC and are being consumed in Vancouver and Victoria, the two major cities. Though there is wine from BC out there, a lot more interesting projects and names are a little harder to come by if you're not in the place itself. The wines themselves are incredibly diverse, and there is a lot of variety in what BC has to offer, which really kind of reminds me of the wines of Washington again, because you can get everything from these really minerally driven Rieslings from producers like Tightrope, which is one of my favorites, and Incameep also makes an amazing Riesling. I also mention Incameep already, because they were the first to start growing Vitis vinifera, but they're also one of the few Indigenous-owned wineries in Canada. They make amazing wine. It's very delicious, um, but I think that's also uh, a good a good thing to note. There's also, though, these big sort of California-Washington-style wines, these big, bold, fruity-oaked reds from big names like Mission Hill or Asoyuz La Rose, which is the project that was started by Group Tayan who also owns Chateau Gouraud La Rose in Bordeaux and makes very sort of similarly quote-unquote styled wines. Although, of course, I believe it can be argued that the wines from BC are a little bit fruitier and riper than the sort of more earth mineral-driven wines made of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot that are coming from Bordeaux. But like I mentioned, these are great wines that we never get to see. And although My own relationship with BC is complicated. Whenever I am there visiting family, I always try and seek out the moon cursor Arneas. You will never find that wine outside of British Columbia, but my God, it is delicious. But there's just so many things going on. I also have friends from Montreal who started a winery called Van Amite, and their Chardonnay is delightful. It's oaky, it's tasty, it's spicy. The range is huge. You even have Blue Mountain Winery making traditional method sparkling wines. So if you are feeling adventurous and you would like to drink some wines from the end of the world, from the Wild West, if you will, I think there are good things to be found in these wines. And of course, all of this is linked in the show notes. And I think that that's a good time as any to wrap up this little episode on the wines of British Columbia. I will link up everything you need to know about the wineries and my sources in the show notes while I muse on my angsty West Coast adolescence and listen to Hole and drink a glass of oaky Chardonnay. But if you have made it this far, then I ask you just to take a minute and scroll down and leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, If you would like to know what I am having to drink the next time that I'm in Vancouver, or you would like to request an episode, or potentially make a correction, there's a few ways to get in touch. You can get in touch with me at housewinepodcast at gmail.com, or over the Instagram, housewinepodcast has its own Instagram page, that's at housewinepodcast, or you can look me up personally if you want to see some cute pictures of my dog, that is Rachel Picard, Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. I really hope you drink something delicious this week. I think the wines of BC merit a 
a keen and watchful eye. I think there's fun and interesting things going on there and that it's a uh, it's an emerging wine region and the more experimentation that's going on the more we're going to see more interesting things come onto the market so keep your house wine eyes peeled uh and i will see you next week drink something delicious